Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I've been reading a, a book lately called The World, An Introduction, which is a pretty cheeky title, but it really does aspire to be like an, an introductory guide to understanding world affairs. I've only read the opening section at this point, which basically runs us through the big sweep of American politics in the 20th century, but it's one of those reading experiences where at the end of it, I feel like I've consumed this this fucking huge, like, sweeping narrative, and I feel like I'm smarter and, like, more enriched than I was to begin with, and I'm, I'm sure it's misleading. I am definitely gaining things. There's a definite benefit to reading this book, but I think it's... There's, there's an endorphin rush to when, when I read something where an author has like managed to compress and coherently communicate a huge amount of information into like just a few pages. If you're a patron on the podcast, you might have heard my very first patron-only episode that went up on Patreon the other day, where I was telling you about this new colleague of mine. He's 32 years old. He, he's, he's, there, were, there were two new colleagues, but he's the one who's constantly reminding us out of nowhere that he doesn't need this job, that he's only doing it for beer money, as he says. But then, after saying that, like, he toils alongside of us for 13 hours, complaining about how little money he has made. And he isn't hoity in saying that he doesn't need this job. His delivery is, is very just like shrugging and matter-of-fact. But, but the gist of that episode, in case you haven't heard it, like the point of that portrait I was painting is that I don't really believe him when he says that he doesn't need the job. And it seems a little sad to me that while working 13 hours of manual labor, I think he feels so insecure about you know being like me, about 10 years older than the rest of our colleagues, that he feels compelled to point out that he's only here for fun. He goes so far as to say that he's, he's doing this for fun. It, it suggests to me that he's, he's very humbled by the experience. Anyway, this dude, who I'm not going to even come up with a name for, he's very big into collectibles, like particularly geek culture collectibles pertaining to Star Wars and Pokemon and video games, stuff like that, which actually now that I think about it, that's probably where his money goes. When he says that he's only doing this job for the beer money, which is hard to believe that he's working 30 hours a week to subsidize his beer habit. Unless his like covert beer habit is bathing in it, I don't think he really needs hundreds of dollars to subsidize it. I think it might just be that he's like too embarrassed to tell us that while his restaurant income is reserved, maybe entirely for recreational expenses, those expenses don't revolve around, like, sexy, transgressive nights at the bar. They revolve around buying, like, a replica lightsaber. That's the kind of thing that he was telling me about. And something that, like, prompts me to think he might be embarrassed about his dalliances in geek culture is that this past weekend, like, there was a thunderstorm going on around the restaurant. Nobody was really coming in. I mean, the restaurant was, like, completely empty for hours at a, at a time. And so this colleague sat with me at a high top table in the corner of the room and he started, we were talking, but he was like dancing around the subject of collectibles. But mainly he was talking about the market 
for collectibles. Start, start, he started telling me about how much money he has he has earned in the past from trading various toys and cards and comic books. And I'm actually really interested in hearing that kind of stuff. I am fascinated and equal parts like fascinated and baffled by how these these toys become like coveted cultural artifacts. I'm sure it's mostly to do with like nostalgia. Um, but anyway, there's also, okay. There's an EMT that I, I've known for a long time. Let's call him Max. Max grew up alongside my brother, and he, he and I were never particularly close. He's three years older than me as well, but he just recently moved into a building on Brickell where like one one of the one of the bars that I frequent is located in in the lobby of that building. And so now after work he he's going down there all the time and and he and I cross paths and we talk sometimes. And one night, you know, it was it was quiet at the bar. He and I were sitting together. We got pretty deep into our cups and he started telling me about how his marriage fell apart and how it's this tormented thing where like he and his ex-wife, they've got two kids together. They know that they're perfect for one another. They still have sex now and then. They date other people, but every now and then they end up in bed together. They still say, I love you. And when they're saying hello and goodbye, this is his, this is his version of the story, incidentally. But despite all of this, their, their relationship just never works out. He says there's just too much friction between them. And when I asked him what some of that friction was, he's like, he kind of beat around the bush for a while. At first he was kind of suggesting that it was just like the little temperamental hiccups between two people living together. But then finally he got around to saying that he's got a gambling problem or that he had a gambling problem. He says he still gambles and maybe gambles more often than he should, but he gambles like 20 bucks at a time, 40 bucks at a time. It's a, it's a, it's a, steep step down from where he was during the marriage that he kind of fesses up to having ruined where he like lost their life savings twice so he confides that to me but then like once we opened pandora's box he got on this roll of talking about not so much about his problem with gambling but about the the gam the general thrill of gambling and of the gambling scene and the gambling culture now he said on the one hand there's the thrill of being at the racetrack or like the high stakes tension at a blackjack table there there's that but then there's something more nuanced in the world of gambling and the nuance that he was really focusing on comes from the world of sports cards of tracking down valuable rookie cards and he was and the gamble there is is the gamble that comes about when you you know you you spend $8000 on eBay to buy 10 packs of unopened baseball cards from 1987 and he starts telling me stories in particular about the Michael Jordan rookie card Sometimes it sells for 20,000, sometimes 50, sometimes mid six figures. The Michael Jordan rookie card is one of the holy grails of card collecting. And he got like, he just, he's going on and on and he's telling me what amounts to like a great caper kind of story about people who have gone to like other parts of the world to get their hands on one of these cards or they've gone across the world for a chance at getting their hand on one of these cards. They've spent their life savings to buy it. They've killed people for it. And it got to a point where I, like, I started to wonder, are these people chasing the card because it's valuable and because they want to flip it? Or are they chasing the card because like they, they cherish it as an artifact? Like are these globe-trotting, gun-toting card collectors something along the lines of, of a pop culture Indiana Jones? And what he told me basically is that, yeah, it's the latter part. If you get your hands on a Michael Jordan rookie card, even if you don't give a fuck about basketball or about card collecting, you become kind of spellbound about its value and people speak about it in like these mystical terms. And he says like, it's often the case that even people who pursue it strictly for financial gain, like 
as it's in your possession, even if it if it appreciates to like double the initial value, the the value at which you acquired it, like the the people who have it are still reluctant to part ways with it. Which maybe to you listening to this, like that makes all the sense in the world. And I'm being weird to talk here about how it's like such a foreign concept to me. But I guess it's just because like I'm not a collector of anything that I'm kind of missing the chromosome. That would help me to understand it. Although I'm pretty sentimental and totemistic about like certain books that I have. And like they're falling apart at the binding, but I won't replace them because that that particular volume, that particular object means a lot to me. I figure that kind of sentimentality probably probably comes from the same part of the brain or the heart or the soul or whatever it is that compels a person to collect records or Funko Pops or baseball cards. But I am generally kind of opposed to just like accumulating things. I'm not a minimalist, but something I discussed with a colleague a little while ago, her name is Patricia and she's in her 60s. This was at the college. She's in her 60s and her mom died a couple years ago. And it was like a, a gradual death. They could see it coming a mile away. And nobody was like, for the, the impression that we got when it was clear that her mom was about to die was that nobody was profoundly aggrieved by the prospect because it was, it was going to be one of those deaths where it was like a merciful departure, like like a cessation of pain rather than, you know, snatched from us too soon. So when her mother did die and Patricia took a, a couple weeks off of work, everybody in the office was like, wow, it must be hitting her harder than we thought. And maybe it's just something about life. Like you tell yourself, you know, you see that this loss is there on the horizon and maybe in some respects you're looking forward to it, but then the loss happens and you realize that you, you could never really prepare yourself for such a thing. That's where we figured Patricia's head was. And then she took more time off. And I think at the end it ended up being like a month that she had spent outside of work, which she was pretty cavalier about doing because she was planning to retire soon anyways. But so Patricia comes back to work. Everyone is expecting her to be kind of dour, to be kind of still shrouded in, in what must be the sort of monumental grief that keeps a person out of the office for a month. But then when she walks in, we see that she's not. She is absolutely her normal self, a portrait of energy and good humor and joy. And it turns out she hadn't actually taken that month off to grieve for her mom. She had taken that month off to clean out her mother's house which was packed to capacity with 30 years of accumulated sentimentality. Dance shoes from her own infancy. Toys that meant a lot to her children, who are now all on social security. Reams upon reams of receipts that were mostly useless, but they were also entangled with critical documents, birth certificates, and shit like that. So everything had to be combed through meticulously. They couldn't just pick up an armful of receipts and dump it. And Patty and I started talking about this for a long time, specifically about how... And it's, I, I think it, sound, it sounds really dramatic to me, and so I don't like to broadcast this, but I maintain that far and away, one of the most traumatizing things I ever experienced was cleaning out the house that my, my parents shared for 30 years um, after they got divorced like five years ago. My brother didn't help at all. My mom came and she did a little bit, but she was mostly living in another city at that point. So for the most part, it was just my dad and me. And my dad was having a hard time with it. He was also simultaneously moving into a new apartment. And so I think that the reason I feel somewhat willing to call it a trauma, even though I would prefer to keep to, to keep that word on a shelf, the word trauma, and apply it only to people's experiences of like really visceral and existentially shaking kinds of experience, like war, like assault. But the reason I'm pretty resolute in calling it a trauma is because I know that I remember the whole process of cleaning out that house 
vividly. But it's like the only experience in my life that I willfully turn off whenever it comes to mind. And I'm not that kind of person at all. I kind of like cherish my demons, like to the extent that I have any. I will dwell, for instance, on the death of Mango, my, my dog who died a couple years ago, which will still bring me to tears if I think about it too long. I will gladly, well, I gladly, but I will willingly dwell on breakups from years ago, missed opportunities, people I have let down and wronged, and I will wallow in those bad vibes as though it's some kind of like moral workout. Like I'm still, like I'm, Every, you know, every every negative, shame-faced memory that I have of those actions, it's like I'm paying off some kind of debt to karma. It actually feels productive. I will contemplate the issue, I will actively try to learn from it, I will transmute it into some kind of content that I'm creating, but I do none of that with the memories of packing up that house and moving out of it. And it's not even that anything crazy happened. There weren't rats or roaches or like calcified cats like you find sometimes in, in episodes of Hoarders where there's like six dead cats scattered around the house that no one's found for years. The process of moving out of that house was just sad in like a very vanilla personal way that I don't, it's the kind of thing that I've often gotten frustrated to see that people felt compelled to write a memoir about it. Like even here on the podcast, I can talk around that experience, but I can't really speak of it, if, if that's not like too hair-splitty a difference to make. But so this colleague of mine the at the restaurant, uh, not Patty, at the restaurant, the one who's a couple years older, he talks to me the other day about collectibles and shit. I think that's what he's secretly spending his alleged beer money on. He was telling me about, about the trading culture among collectors of like the newest Star Wars toy or the most coveted Pokemon card. And I find, again, I find that shit really interesting. But I'm interested in those markets. I'm interested in those transactions and how these things accumulate a sort of cultural clout. But I'm not that interested in Star Wars. I'm not at all interested in Pokemon or anything anime. But I think that I gave him the impression that I was interested in those things. And so he starts you know, pulling up his phone and showing me stuff about, like, the Star Wars canon, stuff that happens in the not, whatever. And I know a little bit about Star Wars, and, and I'm interested to hear some knowledgeable fan explain to me the larger canon that encompasses, like, the video games and the novels and all that, but I'm not very interested in it. Except I also know what it feels like to be in that vulnerable position in front of somebody, like, to start enthusing openly about the thing that over which you secretly obsess but that thing is like it has nerd stigma attached to it so while he was going on and on about star wars i just kind of heard him out and then like kind of with no transition he started telling me about marvel comics and i do read marvel comics thanks to the marvel unlimited app but yeah even that for some reason i actually got kind of bristly when he was telling me at length about like a certain storyline involving the X-Men. And part of it, frankly, is like I'm afraid of being outed as a nerd. Like I don't want people walking past us overhearing us, overhearing this conversation about Wolverine. But I think my agitation there is also reflective of like a larger issue in my life lately, which is that I'm particularly over the past couple months, like I am not responding all that well to anybody's attempt to lecture me on anything. And since I don't work a white collar job anymore, since I don't I don't have to do anything cerebral in my line of work where if I was a lawyer or if I, I was any kind of desk worker, it would be conceivable that maybe a superior would have to sit down and explain a concept to me. But I don't have such a job. 
So it is basically the case that whenever I'm hearing a lecture, it's coming from somebody who is not in a position of authority, and it is occasioned entirely by their whims, and it's often about something that I probably, I either don't want to be lectured about, or it's something, or it's a lecture about a topic that I already know quite a bit about. Mainly this has been happening lately as I bring up the history, you know, the, the biographies and American history stuff that I've been reading. And I think that I take it so personally because I feel like implicit in someone's desire to lecture you is the suggestion that you don't know the things that they're about to tell you. They are taking for granted that you could not possibly know the things that they are about to tell you. And lately I've been hearing a lot of them because I'll be at the bar and like I will enthuse about having just heard, like I just discovered the other day, right after FDR was elected and right before he was inaugurated, he visited Miami and someone shot at him five times and like missed him by a few inches. But if I, if, you know, it's and that's like, a, to me, it's like a fascinating thing to discover. I had no idea that not only was there an assassination, a very close assassination attempt on one of the like the most popular presidents in American history, but it happened in my fucking neighborhood. So I go and I mention that to somebody and the person to whom I mention it will launch immediately into a lecture about every FDR fact that they know and how people don't realize FDR actually had this and this effect on the country as opposed to that and that effect. And another thing that like, I don't know if I'm just noticing it now or if I'm projecting it, but the lectures that I hear are all like inherently negative. People seldom lecture me on why something is great, or if they are talking about why something is great, the praise that they are dispensing is framed within a context of how the, this great thing is underappreciated or underestimated, and people don't people don't realize. I fucking hate when, when someone starts a sentence that way. But I want to focus on those on two of those words: underappreciated and underestimated. Because something that my girlfriend is helping me to appreciate is that these lectures that people are tossing at me out of nowhere, they don't really have anything to do with me. I might as well not actually be there listening to them. It is not communicative conversation, it is expressive conversation. The person is not trying to educate me, they're not trying to change my mind, this is all just plumage. It should go without saying that the people who are lecturing me are all men. And, like peacocks, they are just flashing their feathers, showing how vibrant they are, how educated, and the reason that they feel so compelled to lecture a stranger on why this or that thing is underappreciated, overlooked, whatever, is because they themselves probably feel that way. They themselves, you know, nobody defers to them and asks for their opinion on things or gives them credit for being the intellectual that they fancy themselves to be. So even though this colleague of mine was doing something totally anodyne and friendly by telling me at blue-lipped length about how Wolverine subverted the advances of the Scarlet Witch, I could kind of feel my hackles raising. Also, to his credit, he's not being at all a douche when he talks about these. His lectures are not pedantic. It's just his free-floating enthusiasm for comic books. And it occurs to me, like, as I'm thinking about it, the impulse to lecture people out of nowhere must be particularly hard for, like, an ex-president to resist. Now that I read the Jimmy Carter biography, I really do have, like, a renewed respect for the guy. But he was a difficult dude to work and live with, like, very temperamental, and he would get really fucking bent out of shape whenever people didn't just, like, bend to his will or acknowledge his insight as the prevailing insight. Like, you could kind of see vestiges of that from the beginning of his life, but, like, over, the, over these past 30 years, he's proven, like, a really big headache for all for whichever president is currently sitting in office, because in flagrant violation of a kind of unspoken ex-president 
bro code, Jimmy Carter has been scathingly critical of every sitting president, most pointedly butting heads with uh, George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. The people who were around in the Clinton administration make it sound like he wanted to physically assault Jimmy Carter, who, by the way, has been a senior citizen for 30 years. I feel like that's fucking crazy to think about. For as long as I have been alive on this earth, Jimmy Carter has not only been here, he has been elderly. He just turned 96. He and Rosalind Carter just celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. Incidentally, if you have not gone on Google and looked at the wedding photos of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, I strongly advise that you do so because it looks like an apple pie fucked a baseball. These kids look so goddamn American, and I'm not even 100% sure that it's a compliment because yes, they are both empirically beautiful young people. Their smiles are legitimately infectious. They're, cl they're clearly as happy as they could possibly be, but they just... And this sounds so terrible, but it's really more about me than about them or anyone else. But like, they have a young Christian smile. In these photos, you see that they're smiling in in like the bright-eyed, buoyant manner of this of like the Christian youth group people who would haunt my dorm when I was in college and like try to get me to join them for soda and potato chips out in the grass. There's nothing wrong with soda and chips on the grass, especially when you're enjoying it in good company. But I always felt that there was something like so manufactured about their peppiness. To, to their credit, of all those Christian students who tried to purchase my soul while I was in college by offering me snacks and encouragements, none of them were ever, ever overtly like condemning of my behavior or of my interests um, or any of the interests that I said that I had. Although, as you can probably guess, like my life was pretty tepid in college. Like I didn't really drink until the second part of my junior year. I didn't really smoke weed ever. I did Molly a couple times with friends, but always like they were the ones who provided it. I never really like sought it out. The most transgressive shit that I did in college is probably just like curse a lot and have sex. Although frankly, that's actually not true either. I've always been kind of skittish around sex. And that's also probably easy for you to deduce because like I talk about it so openly here and I make so many jokes about it. Like I think, I think I'm open about it in the way of someone who is like conspicuously actually not that comfortable with it. Like whenever, for, this is a TMI, but fuck it. Every, all of this is, whenever I first sleep with somebody that I really like, like I almost invariably have trouble keeping an erection. Because I've got this voice in my head, maybe it's Jesus, going like, Don't fuck this up, Alex. You better not fuck this up. And so I wasn't all that promiscuous in college. Like, to be honest, plus I always, like, I was only sleeping with one person for the first two years of college. And then it was just one person for the entirety of my junior year. And then senior year was a bit more like... The first person I slept with in my junior year, no, in my senior year, was Diane. And I remember we were drinking beer in my at my kitchen table one day. It was the first time she came over. And then at one point she stood up and she was like, show me your room. <laughs> and then, um, I might have mentioned this to you. We didn't drink like a huge amount of beer, but we did eat like 90% of a family-sized fruit salad beforehand. Um, and so like, she, she leaves my dorm like really late at night. And then the next day she texts me about having like a really bad hangover. And so I called her and I was like, hey, how are you feeling? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't have a headache or anything. I just have the beer shits really bad. Just tossed it out there. And I remember like being kind of taken aback by having her mention the beer shits like a few hours after we first hooked up. But then I remember feeling like vaguely relieved because I was like, oh, this is nice. Like we, the, the hair is down. Both of we, we are talking openly about our bodies. Also, another uh, remembering sort of our tryst, which was not very long lived, but like at that point, I had only slept with like two other people in my life and I was 21. And 
you know, she, again, our hair was down. We were talking very openly about things. And at one point we were talking about like our earlier partners, our earlier experiences. And she goes, I have slept with seven people and you are the eighth. And when she mentioned that to me, I had just read somewhere that uh, the average straight American adult sleeps with about seven people in their entire life. I think the average was about the same for lesbians too, but I think with gay men, it was closer to like 20 partners in a lifetime on average. I also read recently preparing for this episode, just brushing up on those numbers. Like there's a 2013 study called a comparison of sexual behavior patterns among men who have sex with men and heterosexual men and women. And in the study, they point out that like in their massive survey, gay men use condoms during anal sex more often than straight couples use condoms during vaginal sex. And which doesn't, well, I like, guess not a shocking fact. I don't think, but it's, I don't know, and I copied it into my notes here, because I guess it was a statistic and I understood it and that excited me, because there aren't many statistics I understand. Incidentally, and this isn't a joke, like when I first got to college, I was majoring in psychology and I wanted to be a sex therapist. Like I had, I'd heard some podcasts and read some posts about how that job does exist, but like I didn't really know anyone who did it and I didn't know that much about it. I just thought it was interesting that how like human sexuality is kind of like what Susan Sontag called a theater of the demonic that like all of your other hangups, all your other complexes, they kind of, you know, your sex life can end up becoming sort of a battleground for them. But so in my first three semesters, I took all four of the college's existing sexuality courses. And then after I took all four of them, I went to see my advisor and um, she was like, okay, if you want to be a psych major, you've got to take statistics. And I was like, okay, never mind. I'll start a podcast. Progressive as I liked to seem, I was made very uneasy, I think, whenever I was like dating someone who seemed more sexually experienced than me. When I was 19 years old in a long distance relationship and my girlfriend got a vibrator, I was incredibly jealous of the vibrator. I remember telling this to a friend of mine, her name is Lauren, and she goes, her vibrator is not gonna cuddle with her, her vibrator is not gonna make conversation, her vibrator is not gonna love her. And I was like, yeah, but it's gonna make her come. But yeah, back to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter always prided himself on being like the peacemaker, like this great mediating intellectual. But once he was out of office, I got the impression that like, in order to show that he still had, that he still had the know-how for peace negotiations, a craft at which he does seem to have been like prodigiously well-suited. Carter, like throughout his late life, has been prone to just jumping in front of the press time and again to either criticize a sitting president, which is, is sure a virtue, in principle, very much, or, or to offer his own opinion, which kind of subverts whatever the president is trying to do. But can you imagine, like, you're Barack Obama, and you're only in your mid-50s when you leave office after eight years, you're young enough to embark on a whole second career, and you've just spent the past eight years mired in the most fucking salacious government secrets, talking with world leaders, conferring with brilliant strategists and aides and shit, saving lives, leading the planet, and then, suddenly, you're a citizen. And yeah, people are still interested in you very much. They want your two cents on things. You're going to be paid huge sums of money for like speaking engagements and consulting sessions and memoirs, but it's not the same. You aren't going to be seen as a figure of like, of authority anymore. And Carter's biographer, Jonathan Alter, shows that it really does seem outright painful for Jimmy Carter, even in his 90s, to not be called upon more than he is. Because you just know, after reading 700 pages about his life, you know that he would fly to the Middle East in a fucking heartbeat if he was asked to go there and try to broker peace between two leaders. In a heartbeat. And you wouldn't even have to pay him very much. Carter is actually the only living ex-president who hasn't gone on to make tens of millions of dollars in his retirement, but 
that's fine. Pay him whatever you want. After all, he loves it so much. For him, it's just beer money.